Hi, I'm Doyen Sola. I'm Joyce. And you're listening to The Confidant. A podcast where we discuss the news you need to know at the intersection of business, technology, and culture. On today's episode, we're going to talk about Netflix and the end of its DVD era, a push for fair pay for food delivery workers in New York City, the downsides of a community housing model, and how Toys R Us is planning an epic comeback. But before we get into that, we just want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's tuned into The Confidant so far. Because of you, we are at almost 100 downloads. Our listeners are international, baby. Not only do we see you all supporting us in the U.S., we have people in Belgium, Norway, and France. Our goal is to reach all seven continents. Wait, hold on. We want people to listen to us from Antarctica. I want all the scientists, the penguins, and their friends (laughs) to be tuned in. We would love to hear any feedback from you. If you want to say hello or reach out about any potential collaborations, our email is theconfidantpod at gmail.com. And another housekeeping note, today is... Independence Day, I rise, oh, compatriots, Nigeria's call, obey. Happy, oh, you heard that little vibrato or whatever. I just want to wish a happy 63rd Independence Day to all my Nigerians around the world. Yes, happy Independence Day to you and your people. The diaspora is strong, and I'm so glad that you as a child of the nation are here with me recording this awesome podcast. Food delivery workers in New York City are set to receive a pay raise this month after a judge ruled against delivery giants Uber, DoorDash, and Grubhub that originally opposed the city's new minimum pay law. The law aimed at forcing tech companies, according to the New York Times, to better compensate gig workers and will now require the platforms to pay workers about $18 per hour starting in October and then increase that amount to $20 per hour by 2025. How much are delivery workers making right now in New York? Right now they're making about $11 an hour. And for years, gig companies and labor activists have been going back and forth on what gig workers should be compensated, how they should be treated, should they have health care, do they need health care. So what was holding them back from getting this increase in the first place? Gig workers are considered independent contractors, so they're responsible for their own expenses, they don't earn a minimum wage, and they don't receive health care benefits like staff employees do. Labor activists are saying they're being exploited, they're not being paid living wages, And we need to fix this. I think when people think about gig work, they really think about it in terms of who's actually taking on these jobs. I know that when I got to New York City, it was a shock to me to see the difference in the type of workers. When I was in college in Florida, gig workers were students picking up extra shifts so they can pay for their tuition or be able to afford their textbooks. They skewed pretty young. Whereas I got to New York and I've seen a lot of adults, a lot of immigrants using gig work to make a living and to support their families, not just themselves. I can understand why they were fighting for more pay to keep up with inflation 
and to keep up with the amount of labor that the job actually entails. In New York, most people don't just hop in a car and go. You're taking public transit. You're on these e-bikes, bracing the elements to get food from restaurants into households. It's a tough job. You know, at the end of the day, Uber, Grubhub, Seamless, all of these delivery apps or rideshare apps, they need these workers. These workers are crucial to their business model. Here in New York City, the three companies, Uber, DoorDash, and Grubhub, pushed back against the law saying that increased wages for these gig workers means that the cost is going to be passed on to the consumer. The consumer is going to have to start paying more. And honestly, if my service fee gets any higher, I'm going to scream. The judge pushed back and said that that is still not a good enough reason to not pay these workers more. I saw that the platforms were worried about the high prices also harming local restaurants who are very weary about how much profit they're making in relation to the cost of their actual dishes and how much the consumers are paying to use the app. But the New York judge, Justice Nicholas Moyne, rejected all of their arguments and said that the workers could still have flexible arrangements and earn a robust minimum wage. The two do not have to be mutually exclusive. It is the end of an era for Netflix. The streaming giant just sent out its last red envelope at the end of September. Doyen, have you ever seen these red envelopes? No, I have not. Well, I knew about them, but I've never seen it with my own eyes. I've never participated. You know, for all you youngins listening, back in 1998, in the olden days... Netflix started out as a DVD service as an alternative to Blockbuster and Hollywood video. So instead of having to get in your car and drive to the closest store, they exploded in popularity by promising an easier rental experience by mailing out DVDs in these signature red envelopes directly to customers, like movies on delivery. Honestly, I didn't know that people were still receiving DVDs from Netflix. I thought that we had all transitioned onto the digital platform, Netflix.com. I thought so too, but we can take a look at the numbers. So DVDs account for most of Netflix's non-streaming revenue. And in 2021, that was up to $182 million. And while that may sound like a lot, that's just 0.6% of Netflix's total earnings for that year. Netflix had a lot of loyal fans of the service. One man told CNN that he loved ordering DVDs because he had access to Bollywood films and more obscure independent works that are not available on the streaming service. I saw another person who said that they liked how the DVDs had special features like audio commentaries and director's cuts. Remember when you used to pop in a DVD and it had a full menu of things to choose from, like a video game? What sticks out most to me is the Shrek DVDs. I used to play those things like nonstop and I remember like Donkey jumping up and scaring me. (laughs) 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 And Puss in Boots. It just created a whole experience around getting the disc because you knew it was just more than watching the movie. No, that's such a good point. Like you would just have so many options. Like you mentioned, you could watch director's cut. You could see bonus scenes. Netflix now 
You watch one thing and they're already advertising the next before the credits roll. One thing that's also important to keep in mind, there are still people who do not have access to reliable internet and broadband, or they just simply prefer physical media to digital. I do understand Netflix getting rid of the service because if I'm honest, if someone were to hand me a DVD, I would look at them and say, what am I supposed to do with this? I don't have any DVD players. So I feel like they're just getting with the time and they're just fully transitioning to focus on their streaming service. So what will they do with all the DVD discs? A Netflix spokesperson told CNN that it has no plans to sell the DVD business. They're going to be recycling the majority of the DVDs through third-party companies that specialize in recycling digital and electronic media. They're also going to donate some of the inventory and they're offering subscribers of that service a finale surprise. So those people can opt in to receive up to 10 DVDs selected at random from the queue. Honestly, I do wish I had a DVD player because the other day I saw a TikTok that reminded me how much I loved The Sound of Music as a child. And I couldn't find it on any streaming service or at least any of the ones I was already subscribed to. And I was like, wow, like I wish I could watch that movie right now. Exactly. And box sets still make a really good Christmas gift. Maybe nowadays you just have to put the device in there so they can actually play it too. (laughs) Right, exactly. Like here are some DVDs and a DVD player. (laughs) And an HDMI cord and a little extension. And a little projector. And the popcorn to go with it. (laughs) There's been a lot of discussion about affordable housing and affordable housing models to really address the housing shortages that's happening in cities across the country. One of those models is the community housing model, a type of social housing originated in the U.S. that's intended to keep homes affordable in perpetuity, according to Bloomberg. A place where one of these models exists is on the Toronto Islands in Canada, which are a set of 15 small car-free islands in Lake Ontario. Car-free? So how do they get around? They rely on ferries to get to and from the islands, and then there are also paths and bridges that connect the islands to each other. So it's the walkable community. That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool, and apparently these islands have a ton of amenities, but Unfortunately, it's presenting some problems for their older residents because this housing model doesn't really account for when someone's life circumstance changes. Sometimes you move into a place and you decide you want to move or you move into a place with a partner and you guys break up or maybe you just aren't interested in living somewhere else. While it can sound like a utopia, like, ooh, affordable housing, beautiful, we're on the water, we're walking everywhere. These sort of housing models do create a problem. The fact that if you decide one day to sell your home, you would make significantly less money than if you had bought a home traditionally on the housing market. So why don't houses in this community grow in value like a traditional home does? Well, essentially, whoever established the trust established it with the purpose of keeping these homes affordable. So they don't want these homes to increase in value and become multi-million dollar homes. But if you're a homeowner and you decide that you want to sell, one person said, if the Islanders had bought similarly valued homes in the city in the mid-1990s, they'd be millionaires now. 
I'm sure that's a source of regret for some. Wow, that really puts a lot of things into perspective because it's not just the fact that they might need somewhere that's more accessible, especially as the population there ages. I can imagine that they never anticipated this being the case when they initially opted in. I agree with you. And it's interesting because we're trying to find solutions. How do we make housing more affordable? What models work? What models don't work? And I think with this particular model, it sounds like it's a balancing act. Yes, you get this affordable home, but that also means you can't use your property as an investment. I feel like in the U.S., we see, oh, like home ownership, that's a way for you to accumulate wealth. You can pass it on to your children. And while the people here can pass these homes on to their children, they're not going to be passing on million dollar properties that they can cash in one day and add to their net worth. I wonder if this was on the dotted line when they signed. I think this is a good cautionary tale for people looking into alternative forms of housing and trying to build up their portfolios. You just need to make sure that what you buy is serving the exact purpose that you need it to. It almost feels like a cycle in a way in that if someone is seeking out affordable housing because they need an affordable place to live and they land it, which is awesome. You know, a lot of times there are lotteries associated with these sort of properties. It's like really hard to get it. So if you do land this sort of property, it's like, okay, I needed affordable housing because maybe I don't make as much money or maybe I'm disabled. Something is impacting my income, but that also means that I cannot use the home that I own as a vehicle or a way to accumulate more wealth. It's just a cycle. So then do you just take the option of, well, I'm just going to go for normally priced homes and I know that in 50 years and 60 years is going to be worth this much? Or do I save money right now in the short term? Hold up, wait a minute. Y'all thought we was finished? What is happening right now? I'm just setting the theme for Toys R Us, who is apparently making a big comeback. The toy retailer is planning to grow its brick and mortar presence by up to 24. 24. Come on, French. New flagship stores on top of a rollout at airports and cruise ships right in time for the holidays. This rollout is of military proportions. I'm not exaggerating. WHP Global, the parent company of Toys R Us, is calling this the air, land, and sea expansion. I have memories of Toys R Us, Babies R Us. I know that the Toys R Us that was near me and where I grew up was gone. So in 2017 is when they filed for that bankruptcy, and they went down from around 1,600 U.S. stores to just two in 2021. And in that time, WHP acquired the former parent company called True Kids. And since then... They've entered a partnership with Macy's to feature Toys R Us in 400 stores. So it was like a stealth mode revival and a very slow build to a brand that used to be truly a staple in retail. I mean, it was the main place to go to buy toys and games, and it was always booming during the holidays. I remember the Black Friday videos that used to be on the local news of people fighting over Tickle Me Elmo. And in 2021, they opened up a 20,000 square foot, two level flagship in the American Dream Mall in New Jersey. 
Apparently, this store has a two-story slide, a cafe, ice cream shop. That sounds like an amazing shopping experience for a kid. That sounds like chaos for the parents. <laughs> like, no, 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 come over here. The line for the slide is mixed with the line for the self-checkout. <laughs> I don't blame them for putting all of these accoutrements in the store because this is just a part of retailers creating these immersive experiences for shoppers. What else is going to make someone want to come into your store versus just sitting on their couch and ordering online? I feel like during the pandemic, because we were all stuck at home, there was a domino effect and the impact that had on these brick and mortar locations. But I think people have jumped the gun saying that in-person shopping was dead or it would never be the same. But I think people want experiences. People want to do something fun, something new. Interestingly, I was listening to Morning Brew where they brought up how there is a resurgence in brick and mortar, specifically in U.S. malls. With all of the talk about shopping malls falling apart, they were able to pinpoint that to the loss of big businesses that occupied a lot of real estate in malls, like Sears, like Bed Bath & Beyond, like JCPenney. And as those stores dwindle in numbers, they're left with empty space that had been occupied for maybe decades. Even during the pandemic, a lot of these spaces were converted into testing centers for the communities that they serve. But now that they're vacant again, people are getting creative and hosting pop-up shops, activations for other brands, community events, and more. I think there's potential for us to shift away from online shopping and go back to the days where it's like you call up your friend and you're like, you want to go shopping? Let's go to the mall. Like, I don't think that's completely gone yet. I'm curious to see how malls and retailers put a little spin on the shopping experience. You know, can I now go and do a little shopping, get a pedicure, manicure in the store, you can get a hydrofacial or skincare treatments done in Sephora in-store. It's only a matter of time until we see even more elaborate amenities. And now it's time for a little something sweet. Joyce, what's your something sweet? I'm going to do a LinkedIn-style post. <clears throat> I am thrilled to announce that I am officially claiming the title of part-time content creator. No more sidelines. I am fully in the game. And Deion Sanders is my coach. The one thing that I look forward to the most is exploring the spaces around me, learning and soaking up a ton of information, and just finding creative ways to give that back so people can see the world in a way that I see it. And so I'm making it a mission to create content, not just for fun like I have been, but to do it with more intention and continue to seek inspiration in the world around me. I know it's a little sappy, but I really feel like this is something that I could do for myself because I've had a few opportunities to realize that no one else is going to open the doors for me. I have to do it and fight for myself in the same way that I would fight for someone else's vision. Honestly, I love that, Joyce. And as one of the people in your corner, I'm rooting for you. I'm encouraging you. Do it. I feel like a lot of times the energy we put into building other people's dreams, we forget that we have a right to use that energy towards our own dreams. So claim that part-time content creator title. Part-time influencer. There, I said it. 
I've been starving for art. So one thing I really want to do is I want to see the museums. I want to go to live performances like Alvin Ailey, the Rockettes, experience fine dining, all of the above. It's giving patron of the art. It's giving socialite. I do consider myself a Haitian princess. So <laughs> what about you, Dorian? What's your something sweet? Speaking of being a patron of the arts, exploring, getting to know the city, there is a new Broadway show that is on my radar and I can't wait to get tickets. It's called Jaja's African Hair Braiding, written by Ghanaian American playwright Jocelyn Beale. It's a Broadway show that takes you inside of a Harlem African braiding shop. And I'm like, I already know that it's hilarious. I know that it's going to be so much fun. I'm so excited to see this sort of representation in a place like Broadway. Like, how many years have we spent getting our hair braided at an African hair shop with the aunties? And it's just such an experience. It's almost like a rite of passage for a young Black woman. So I can't wait to see how they have turned that experience into a musical, into a moment to talk about being an immigrant, labor, using your skills, literally using your hands to build a life for yourself in a place like the U.S. The visuals are already stunning from what I've seen. They have tons of subway art with that big braided bun. I've seen the stage design where it literally looks like you're walking down 25th, 125th Street. You're walking around with a little hat on and they're like, you need your hair braided? You need your hair? And you're like, ma'am. I'm just trying to get, you know, just trying to go to the stove. One thing that is consistent about immigrants in this country, to quote Hamilton, we get the job done. Come on. We are hustlers. We work. We build brick by brick. To have that experience captured and cemented on Broadway in New York City, a global destination, this is a huge moment for Jocelyn and Black representation in theater. Absolutely, because I read that the entire cast is Black and a majority of the creative team is as well. So, you know, it's just going to be spot on. It's just going to be chef's kiss. That's all for this episode and this season of The Confidant. Thank you so much for listening and learning and laughing with us throughout this season. If you're a fan of the show and you love what you're hearing, Tell a friend because you know that sharing is caring. Don't forget to leave us a review and rate us five stars. And please follow us on Instagram at The Confidant Pod and send us an email with your feedback, your thoughts, your ideas at theconfidantpod at gmail.com. We look forward to connecting with you. See you soon.